Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. My guest today is George Robertson. George is a highly interesting contrarian investor that started in Wall Street way back in 1981. We start this conversation with a few incredible stories from his colorful career. George then makes a compelling case on why the Fed no longer has any power and what's really happening with the U.S. economy. We end the conversation with another provocative claim on the markets for U.S. Treasuries. Please enjoy this conversation with George Robertson. George, thank you for doing this. I'm excited to have this conversation. I think just an interesting place to start was I've heard you on a couple other podcasts, and it reminded me of a lot of the people that I was lucky enough to work under coming up in the investment management business. Maybe just give us a thumbnail sketch of your career, how it started, how you came to be in the investment world. Sure. Well, I started out at Toronto as a stockbroker. This is in the late 70s into 1980. And I wrecked havoc amongst the dentists of Toronto such that I had fears about whether I could get my teeth ever fixed again. So I decided the right thing to do was to just pick up and go for it. And I flew down to New York with a little bit of money. I had a friend who I grew up with when I spent some time in Cleveland, Ohio, who is the so-called human piranha in Michael Lewis's book, Liar's Poker. And he hadn't seen me since junior high, but I called on him and he's a decent fella, Tom Bernard. And he introduced me to Solomon Brothers. And I had the right amount of rudeness and chutzpah, just scared out of my wits that I actually somehow got in there. And they allowed me in just really a lab rat experiment to see where this non-Harvard, non-MBA type of guy go. And I did okay. Actually, I did pretty well. But the first job was as a secretary, even upgraded to an administrative assistant for Henry Kaufman, who at that time was the big guru for what the heck the economy was doing, what assets were going to do. And it was based upon a flow of funds analysis that had the Z tables that come out every quarter from the Federal Reserve. They still do where he would tally up the demand supply for credit and treasuries, and then make a prediction about where interest rates were going to go and where credit spreads were going to develop and so on. It was state-of-the-art at the time, and it didn't work. But that's not the point for a kid at that time. It was just a great education for understanding that in all asset markets, there's both an asset and a liability, and it's the interplay between the two that counts, not what's happening in one asset or who's abusing it and taking down an asset or vice versa in a liability. So to this date, I think I have a more grounded understanding of things like liquidity, supply, we're going to get a trillion of treasuries and the world's going to end type stuff. I can't really feel the angst or the concern. And it's been a great help. And then after that, after Salman for a couple of years, I went and worked for the legendary and he became a good friend. He fired me three times. 
hired me back, a guy named John Mohern, who was a self-confessing nut. He was uh, larger than life, not through choice, but probably just biology, and a genius, very mercurial. It was a very exciting room to work in. Izzy Englander of Millennium was his risk guy slash partner. And the two of them would just do a tattoo on you all day long. And also, it was just the greatest fun I've ever had in my life. But Boski showed up. This is a famous guy who screwed with the market with insider trading. And in the process of him going to jail and getting caught, John got swept up on this. And being the crazy guy he is, he actually set out to try to kill Boski. It was just every week was a shock. So I moved on. But through a Solomon start, which was a lot of fundamentals and what economics were all about and what the Fed was doing at that time, the exciting days of 1981, and then hitting John, which was just all about trading. It was intuitive. It was one of the early geniuses as far as option maths go, but it was all demand, supply, and flow. So I think it was about as good a start as an average intelligent guy like me, but with a lot of gumption could have. Had several jobs like that. I got to trade some very vast amounts of money when I was working for the Bass Brothers down in Fort Worth, Texas. This is the family that inherited a lot of the oil wealth in Texas. And then they went on to Disney and some other things. And my job was to protect the family assets and hedging, and also just to go out and be a brigand. It was legally and correct and all intuitive, but it was like, what happens when you do 500 million? What happens when you do this or that, or observe some other buddy doing that? So I got a really good understanding of tactical demand supply. And my last job was running long duration for Morgan Stanley Investment Management. I was on the investment committee for the fixed income part of Morgan Stanley Investment Management. We had $89 billion under management. And I did, a, I thought, just a terrific job. But across the hallway, we had these total fruitcakes and mortgages. And they couldn't sit still unless they bought more mortgages. And after they just did more and more, they walked right into a Minsky moment as we all know what happened in 2008 to 2012. And the firm went from 89 billion under fixed income management assets to about 19 or 22 billion, which is for them a disastrous number. And I wasn't the first to leave the firm, but they eventually saw no need for fixed income and some of the stuff we we're doing. So I did leave in 2012. Since then, I've actually tried to work hard in bringing professional rugby into the world in the US. I still think it's a terrific trade, but I think I've exhausted every possible avenue of approach on it. I think I'm a good warning of don't ever let your avocation or your passion <laughs> become your job. It makes it interesting, but it actually sucks in terms of the results in the end. You're going to need uh, a Netflix documentary to get it into the United States. I tried that. I actually had some meetings. Anyway, there I go. And then I still, by habit, get up very early in the morning to see what the heck London's doing and keep watching the markets and I don't know, it's some pathology. It's not really an attribute. And then I start getting into Twitter and start doing all sorts of stuff. So my wife, good person that she is, basically thought I just got Looney Tune. So I had to try to figure out how to make, not just by habit doing all this stuff, we're professionals. So ergo, here I am talking to you. And I think we've actually put a very good group together called the Monetary Frontier. My partner is Riddick Goyle. He's at rpgoyle underscore on Twitter, or I guess we should call it X. And I think between his precision and discipline, and perhaps because of my experience, we're really coming up with a great product, which I'm pleased that you might want to talk about. So let's start with, as someone who's looked at the markets over a long career, it feels there are different regimes or times when how people are trained 
to think about things. So let's start with that. So you mentioned the Fed flow of funds and it not working back when you tried to use it, but at least there was some framing. So I thought an interesting place to start might be if you were bringing someone in that was an ambitious, hungry person to finance, but they weren't a PhD in economics and they were going to be a trader. And you were trying to say, look, when you think about trading risk or thinking about the economy, here are some of the basic tenets that you should think about. I think the world of trading and risk is divided between two worlds. One is sentiment, which has absolutely nothing to do with reality, but for key points of change where you have no choice, where something traumatic has happened, an exogenous shock like COVID, or a sudden realization that what was a given is found out to be smoke. So it requires a complete revamping and reorganization of the markets. These don't happen every day. They don't happen every week. They don't happen any periodicity. You talk about risk on, risk off, especially here in the popular press and the MEMS. They can be every month with a lot of bad stuff's happening, but usually they're about 18 months to a couple of years between these episodic changes. I would call those regimes. And regimes actually trade rather steadily. At the time, it seems like it's very confusing and there's ups and downs and all things going on. But in hindsight, especially, it's pretty obvious that there was a momentum or a central thread that wasn't too difficult to discern. And that's the world of sentiment. I used to not respect technical analysis at all, but now I do. It's a way of internal risk control, if you will, understanding the limits within a certain time frame or period, a day, a week, a month, where chances are that whether you love something or hate it, it will only go up a certain amount of time and it's probably wise to reverse and it'll only go down a certain amount of time. And as long as you don't end up holding the bag at one of these peaks with a max position as per your sentiment world, when the regime changes, I think the movie Arbitrage where Jeremy Irons was there as the chairman saying, I don't hear any music at all. And he says, that's the whole job. Well, if long as you're not holding a position when the music stops, you can make a very good living as a sentiment trader and have a lot of respect for it. But Sentiment should not be confused in terms of macro, in terms of what defines these peak moments, both in the highs and the lows of when we have regime change. And macro is right now being scoffed at, being ignored, because everyone thinks that they got the keeper of the macro, if you will, the Federal Reserve, they got this pinned down. Everyone knows for a fact where the Fed's doing, and they're going to tighten, they're going to ease and everything. A lot of that is because it's the Fed's strategy to make sure that they provide forward guidance so no one's taken offside, everyone can rearrange their risks, and instability does not occur. That's the big Fed's word. And that's really what the Fed's managing to, instability. The problem is, though, is to manage the instability and volatility in the marketplace. The Fed has replaced macro fact, which has noise. It surprises you. It can change there. Whoops, nobody's buying any more cars. There's all sorts of events that really have a very large, dramatic change in the macro story, but the Fed has gone out of its way to try to eliminate those as noise with the idea that, well, over three, six months, this will be reverting and correcting. So therefore, if we just focus in the forward space, and this is actually stated, it's not me, but this is what the Federal Reserve said. People now confuse the subjective of the Fed to eliminate the year-to-year noise, month-to-month noise, day-to-day noise, and just provide the steady-as-she-goes idea that everything's under control, and here's your forward guidance with macroeconomic analysis. They're not one and the same. And especially now, because as we have had an exogenous shock with COVID, everything's been rewritten in a very dramatic way. We haven't had such drama since World War II. And the last time we had a national emergency, and the Congress and the president was unleashed to go fix it, no matter what the cost is. Therefore, it's a time where the 
sentiment and the macro may actually start to intertwine in a very short frame. We might get into an oscillation of regime shifts, if you will, which will sweep away sentiment. And we could have round trips in this. It can get very, very exciting. Now, to get back to your question is, if I were to start out, first, I'd hook up with someone far better, brighter, and we'll put up with you. Go get the coffee for the desk, do whatever menial bullshit jobs you got to do so they'll put up with you. Because it is trying to have someone starting out to hang out on the desk. But especially if they know that if they do do a good job educating, you're probably going to compete with them in about two, three years. It's a dog-eat-dog world. So you choose, what are you? Are you a sentiment guy? Are you a macro guy? Even portfolio managers are always wrestling for the last couple basis points to get over the index level. So they often end up as traders anyway, just nothing in a sentiment. But portfolio managers are usually the macroeconomic and understanding of if I construct this portfolio with some skill, it will endure the noise. And in a year, year and a half, I'll be ahead of everyone. Or you just hook up with a craziest ass sentiment guy and really understand options and key peg points and the very short term, sometimes hours cycle of the games that go on. So become one, but it's usually a big mistake to try to do both. Right now, there's a lot of equity masters. I couldn't even sit next to them and compete. But now they're all babbling away about macro and Fed. And in my experience, they're just full of crap. They're just bullshit artists. But they feel they have to noble what they do for a living and do very well. So they go off into this macro monetary tangent. People will go on a long trend just like Wiley E. Coyote coming off the cliff with nothing but air underneath them. And sooner or later, they just go, I actually didn't understand anything about the economy. I've been sprouting this bullshit. It could last for about 18 months as more and more people collect with it because their movements that they're able to get out of the sentiment becomes actually a useful story, a mem for people who generate sentiment. So why not? It's a good story. So we hang on. But then it often ends up in a bad way. So people love stories. To me, I think anyone who's ever really managed money, the markets just humble you and it seems so complex and you think you have the best idea and you've put it together. Whatever process you use, you're just constantly being humbled by, I know so little about how it works as opposed to some of these storylines that are so confident. So I want to break down the view of the Fed because I know you have a strong opinion on it and you have a favorite topic. You ask people about the reaction function of the Fed. If the Fed does something, what's the reaction? Before we get to today, whether it's pre-2012 or you tell me what Fed Reserve we have to go back to, what was the reaction function before stuff got weird? I want to know what it used to look like before we talk about today. Well, it's pretty easy to dig it up. And I think it's the closest to fact or theory that's pragmatically useful that we've ever had. That was John Taylor's rule where a certain movement in the Fed funds would be handicapped or be derived from how excessively strong the economy was, overheating in terms of over-trend growth, and also the idea of what inflation was over what the inflation target was. So it was a pretty simple algorithm, but boy, did it work. In fact, I know guys have made millions and millions of dollars just trading the Taylor rule when the Fed was using it. That's the reaction function. And then Greenspan started to mess with it a bit because it seemed like everything was feeding back on itself, that the reaction function wasn't giving the drama anyway. Nothing was happening to inflation. The great moderation came through. They're wildly successful. And volatility and instability didn't happen that much. So everyone just was happily trading. And this is actually the first time where the reaction function started to be replaced with rule of thumbs. And then it actually morphed into sentiment. So that when we ended up with the shock from the mortgage assets falling off the face of the earth, there really wasn't a Fed response that was adequate because they had almost trashed the reaction function, perhaps unknowingly. 
So Bernanke's into it for the first couple of years and he realized this reaction function is not working. We've dropped down to ZERP. Taylor rule says we should have gone to negative three at some point. Now Congress will just flip out, won't let me do this. So I have to replace all the Taylor rule with a more stylistic or more salesmanship, if you will. And Woodford, this professor in Columbia, dug up a guy who died about 120 years ago called Wixell. And he said that, okay, we have to use Neil Wixell approach. And what that actually is, is replacing the reaction function with a complete turnaround to where we are the Fed. We are the most powerful institution in the world. Let's show you exactly what I mean by we'll just strap on $3 trillion U.S. treasuries and we'll do it in a couple of weeks. And it got everyone's attention and everything calmed down. At the same time, probably Steve Ratner saving GM and the other autos did more effectively in terms of actually saving the economy than the Fed did. But the Fed certainly showed its power. So it carried on with that, as per Woodford outlined, they seriously called it Delphic and Odyssean. So they can intersync them. It's a belief system. It's saying, don't worry about what's happening now. Don't look too closely at us. And anyway, we're going to screw with the metrics. So there is no metrics to speak of, except that we just added $1 trillion in quantitative easing. And we're going to call it quantitative easing. Even though it doesn't ease, forget about the here and now. All we want you to look at is what's going to happen a year, year and a half, two years, dot plots. And they're doing it today. You heard a lot of the discussion was on whether Fed fund futures are near the dot plot or the dot plot. And it's all gobbledygook. First of all, the forward guidance, which is what this is called, has been the complete replacement of the reaction function. There is no reaction function now. If the Fed actually can reach what they say they're going to do, or if just by happenstance it happens, inflation's coming off and the Fed can take complete credit for that, but it has nothing to do with the Fed. It's almost like I call it pot banging, where if a solar eclipse happens, it scares the hell out of people. They run out with a bunch of pots and bang on them. And then the solar eclipse goes away and they say, see, our pot banging is what brought this about. I want to make sure I understand it before we go into the details, which is that I remember when I first started getting deeper into markets with Greenspan, and you study Volcker and prior presidents, it was the idea that the power of the Fed was the surprise, that we didn't know it was going to happen. And just for simplicity, if the Fed raised interest rates, it would cool the economy because suddenly we were surprised that the car you were going to buy cost more than you knew. And that Greenspan was such a magician that there was this idea of the Greenspan put that if the markets wobbled, he could just surprise you and make this better somehow with lowering interest rates. The move to Bernanke, to me, was this idea that they wrapped it up into communication. They wanted to be more transparent. I was one of the largest bond managers in the world, and it was pitched as, we don't want you guys to be surprised. We don't want there to be caught exactly. up. So then I'm curious, were they already losing the power of the Fed and the reaction function? Or did the market just run ahead and go, because we know what you're going to do, you're going to naturally lose power? Or did the Fed make some critical error in judgment to go down this path? I think it's going to be a disaster, the end results. Now, whether this is next week or probably in several years, I don't know. I can't tell you. I think actually COVID really showed it, that if you look at the flows, as I said, I started with a flow funds type approach, and you actually look dollar in, the Fed goes out and jams the Fed funds right to ZERP again after trying to struggle it back up to 3% or so. You should see something. As the Fed addresses this crisis, then I should see what was falling apart in the economy meant, or at least maybe even some part that was growing grow more. I should see the bank's confidence to give out bank loans stronger. I should see various obvious, at first not subtle movements because the Fed funds have dropped to ZERP. You still can't see anything. 
And we've done a lot of work, and myself and Riddick, in trying to figure out what we call this the monetary impulse. If dropping rates down to zero and holding there for a long time, we should see something, and you see nothing. It is impossible to find $1 of change in the economy as the results of the Fed fund changes. And at the same time, the COVID QE, where they're starting to try to do a bit of so-called quantitative tightening, which is just reduction of the Fed's holding of treasuries. So they went right back the other way, and they had a very large COVID peaked out at about $8 trillion bucks. Massive. Again, you see nothing. If anything, what you do is you see the calcification of some of the flows in bank systems and whatever. So it actually ends up as a perverse way, a slight tightening, because the system's not as effective as it was before. But anyway, if a trillion bucks was done as QE in response to COVID, and then various other measures they took, I should be able to take my finger and say, aha, there it is. Auto sales just went up. Or there it is. Wages improved. Or there it is. Nothing. Let's just dive into that. Because when QE happened, you remember two years later, there was those 40 famous investors who said the whole world was going to blow up and we were going to have hyperinflation and the Fed was the most dangerous weapon ever. And that QE was this weapon we had just unleashed. And I had no idea what was going to happen. No one knew what would happen if you bought trillions of dollars of assets. But to your point, obviously nothing that you can point to happened, but does something eventually happen? Or could the Fed buy every asset out of the market and just own it and nothing would happen? What did happen in a very big way was that we used to have a fractional reserve system. I can't remember what the number was, 10% or 15%, depending upon the risk, the classification of the assets in the bank system. And then the QE was a wash. They buy the treasuries from the bank system, they give them the money to buy the treasuries. And then that money goes right back to the Fed in terms of held the reserves. The reserve, which used to be about $800 billion, shot up at first dollar for dollar with the QE operation. So we did $3 trillion of QE, we got $3 trillion increase in reserves. So the fraction of reserves, let's assume that it's just there to make an illustration, has gone to 20% of all assets with each QE. It was a wash. The Fed can't destroy money. It can only make it come in reserves from the system banks. And they can't really destroy assets. There's two sides to a balance sheet, assets and liabilities. So when they do QE, they buy treasuries. And all that really is, is a swapping of, say, a 10-year duration or 10 years or a five-year treasury or a zero maturity treasury, which is Fed funds. So it's a change in duration, which since the Fed is managing this, has no impact on the yield curve or various other metrics. It's just a wash. It's almost propaganda. The Fed would say, that's not true. As soon as the QE and the QT stopped and say, okay, this is it. We're now going to hold $3 trillion of securities on our balance sheet or $5 trillion. It doesn't even matter because once that amount is held steady, the growth of the economy will make it a fraction that will be stable and defined, which will only fall based upon how the economy is growing. And so if the Fed just says, okay, the economy grew 5%, our bank footings grew 5%, we're going to fly by another 5% of treasuries because we want the reserves to go up that incremental amount too. But it's stabilized. As soon as they give up on this big noise of QT, and it's just noise, QT and QE, that is really mucking up the system. It's like you let your hot water system in your home go to 50 PSI versus where it should be only 16 PSI. Something will break. And we have seen it actually in end of the year repos and some disjointed problems in managing this float. But as far as the economy goes and people getting employed and jobs, it's done nothing. What did it do for the notion of animal spirits that when you lower rates to zero for a long time, we had this Tina trade, there's no other risk. You just had to go out there and buy other assets. So there's just the notion that 
if treasuries are zero, the treasury buyer buys muni, the muni buyer buys corporates, the corporate goes to high yield, high yield goes to equity. Everyone just pushes out the risk spectrum, which then inflates assets. And you can totally comment that this is just a meme, it's not true. It's not true. Again, if you look at the national accounts, like the Z tables, Mm -hmm. you'll see that the percentage of treasuries held for the nation, less the treasuries that China buys and other people, are pretty stable. It doesn't really matter. It's not dependent upon interest rates. So therefore, the amount of corporates is pretty stable. Now, the amount of corporates can change, but that's more of a Modigliana-Miller thing, where it doesn't really matter whether the company finances itself with all equity or all corporates. In the end, it's a wash in terms of the cost of capital for the firm. So if you're seeing an increase in corporate issuance, then you should be seeing either a holding steady or a decrease in equity and vice versa. It's a wash. And that goes through everything. The fact that interest rates dropped to zero, say, doesn't mean that the New York City can no longer has to issue munis to finance whatever the heck they're up to. So it really has little, if any, effect to the supply of assets. And it does have some effect to the demand, but only if it's done as a shock. That means, as you said before, just scare the bejesus out of the market. As per the Taylor rule, that's what it's designed for. That's why it's always an excess of whatever change you're trying to get done. You can get something done in that flash of as far as economic time goes of a month or a week. But if you hold the rates there, then everything just adjusts accordingly. And in fact, higher rates that are chronically held too high, starts with the Fed funds and it bleeds right out to the longer maturities, actually raises inflation. And if rates are held too low, versus where they should be for the maximum operation of the economy, then that will actually start to upset the economy, drive it down, and that will actually cause deflation. Rates actually set the inflation level. And if they go up, then inflation will go up. If they go down, inflation will go down. You don't have to take my word for it. You just look at the relationship of Fed funds to inflation. And if you start looking at what Fed funds, maybe 1981, 7981, there was actually a recession or slowdown in the economy started by the Fed. But ever since then, the Fed's been lagging. That means if the economic activity went down, Fed funds went down or vice versa. Now, with ZERP, it started to go the other way where they actually started to get in the lead, but in the wrong direction by dropping to ZERP and not just shocking it down and then adjusting up to where they want the economy to trade. The Fed actually dropped the economic growth. And at the same time, they're talking and we're bullish, we're worried about employment, Yellen's dad needs a job, all the stuff that we heard. It was actually the opposite effect that was happening. They're stilting the economy. And at the same time, Obama, for all his talk, I don't know if you remember when he did his big rescue in 2009. The American Recovery Act. Recovery Act, ARA. And Krugman came out, who, if there's anybody who should be in the camp of Obama at that time, Ms. Krugman, he was livid. He was going on time. There's nothing here. There's absolutely no Keynesian stimulus here. It's 50 billion a year. We're looking at a whole of a trillion odd. And blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they shut them up after a couple of weeks and they just stopped talking that way. And then they started to do a very orchestrated campaign of, remember the shovels ready? We would give you a trillion bucks, but by God, you don't have enough shovels to go dig ditches with a trillion bucks. So we're not going to do it. We're going to do what we can manage. And then we're going to send Steve Ratner out. So as far as money in, money out, the Obama administration was very austere. So that was the very popular spiels at that time with Reinhardt and Rogoff, and that if you wanted to get your country up to AAA, and if the U.S. wants to no longer be in the sights of Moody's, then we have to be austere. This yeah. is the idea that the whole world was blowing up, and the yeah. amount of debt your country had divided by your GDP couldn't break 120, and if it did, all hell would break loose, and you would default like Greece or be in trouble like Spain, and that America was on that path. And what it really was was an excuse for austerity. 
Before we go further down that path, I guess I want to time break it for a second. Going into COVID, I would say that the consensus fear, like Bernanke's fear, I think it was the thesis he wrote on, was deflation was the ultimate fear. That was something the Fed could handle inflation. They knew what to do in hyperinflation. But if we went into this hyper progress technology, all these jobs, just put everyone out of business, that was the boogeyman. And it felt like people's general belief was it was really hard to get inflation going before COVID. Is that because the Fed was doing something inappropriate, in your opinion? Or was that really, from your point, was the sentiment and what I'm trying to articulate before COVID? Was that the macro situation? Well, let's just take five years before COVID. It is very hard to find any stimulus in any of the Obama metrics. It was pretty austere. And I think what the spiel was that we want to pass all the stimulus down to the states, especially our very friendly state of California and New York, because we want to get reelected. So if we go out and do a great federal stimulus, and it's based upon jobs and works and industry and economics, our growth, then those pesky Republicans who are much more adept at a national scale will come and when Mitt Romney steps up, he'll wipe my ass. He'll just destroy me. So therefore, we're not going to do that. We're going to move the money into the states. So there's a lot of grants, there's a lot of teachers, unions, all these programs that did. So it was expressed in the state support, and it was the states, New York and California, which really kicked in. And then probably more importantly was the works of the likes of Steve Ratner. They did some really good reorganization and rationalization of large chunks of the economy. The most notable was the auto rescue. Anyway, this shows up with a 1%, 1.5% inflation. It actually shows that the fiscal guys, and what they're doing is over the long run going to generate inflation, either up or down. It's not the Fed at all. And then if the Fed goes and cuts to zero, which they did for years and years and years, then that almost seals the deal. And it won't cause deflation, but it will cause a stagnant, low, almost non-existent inflationary rate. And it also kills the momentum of the economy. If you look at graphs of the trend economy, trend real GDP, bubbling along in 2008, and then it just drops off the cliff. Well, it makes sense because of the mortgage debacle. But then it never really regains the trend growth that it had before. There's always this gap that was carried on year after year after year. And that's because of fiscal. The Fed can't answer that gap, no matter what they say and talk about. So then COVID happens. And is this a big change moment where all of a sudden you unleash fiscal spending for all those years of austerity? Yes, for two reasons. First, I think Biden's campaign was very worried about Trump. It was very swift. He realized that Trump was behind the gun in terms of addressing COVID and the sizes and the presence that people want. He's talking about injecting yourself with chlorine and all this crazy stuff. They didn't address the COVID in any way that satisfied the fear. I think it was state-led for the most part, but certainly agency-led like CDC. Biden realized that. And he launched on to COVID as a terrible emergency that requires trillions of spend not just this tax program. And although Trump, to be fair to him, did start the direct helicopter money drop of unemployment insurance, Biden just took that and launched it further and further. So he wins the election and he just carried on. It was trillions of dollars that were sent directly to you. The states did operate as an agency and that just got right to the pockets of the average, if not below the mean in terms of wealth. People, never been done before. And then on top of that, Biden used just the fear of this COVID that's going to destroy the nation to firm up internationalism with association with Europe and the ECB and all the stuff. But more importantly, in the U.S., he got Congress to step away because Congress, you don't want to be responsible for killing 20% of the Americans. So they put their hands up and they said, run with it. So the last time that Congress gave such carte blanche to a presidency was in World War II. 
for obvious reasons. So Biden had incredible authority to do whatever the heck he wanted in fiscal space, which hasn't been seen since World War II. What's your estimate of of how much money they put into the economy? Well, I have it expressed in percentage of GDP. And if you look at the fiscal impulse, it just takes off like a rocket. It peaks at about 13, 14% of GDP, not as much as World War II, but it is a wartime footing. And it's been maintained over 10% since late 2021. This is a massive input. And the way you can, like a taxi meter, watch this is what are the excess savings that are still left in people's coffers after this helicopter money drop peaked up to about 7.5%. And then it's tailed off, but there's still about maybe 2.5%, 3% of US GDP left still in savings. If you want to put it in money, this is what the US government paid out and also received in taxes and other receipts. It peaked at three and a quarter trillion dollars. And if you think about it, it was an uneven distribution in terms of the people that received this. The gross payout from a fiscal point of view peaked at around $7 trillion. So it's probably not right to do total payout netted against income, which is that three and a quarter trillion number. Probably it's effectively a lot larger. Anyway, it's a number we haven't experienced in terms of size and quickness since World War II. If you think macroeconomics is important to you, this is where your eyes should be. And there really is no showing of the Fed at all. It's just all from the federal government. Now, where this ends, I don't know. But the sentiment, which is defined by the Fed, or at least the Fed's offered up as the excuse, is basing everything on a myth. Now, this might last for years and years. Maybe it never goes away. But it's not based on reality. I think what's going to happen is the sentiment will merge with the regime, the macro changes. Things are going to get pretty wild. And in fact, there is an economist called Hyman Minsky, who was cited as a great god in the 2008 to 2012 with the Minsky moment, which said that there's three phases to economy. The first phase, which is usually ongoing, is the hedge phase. Everyone is cautious and careful and sober and nobody goes too crazy. And then when people start to realize that more risk can be taken on, And this is not the risk on that traders refer to. This is, I think, JP Morgan, I think we're going to increase our bank footings by 20%. So how are we going to do? We're going to go buy another bank or we're just going to really goose everything up. That enters into a speculative phase. And there's good results for that because the economy is generally growing, but it gets very speculative. And market volatility comes in and it gets very large. I think we're right now just starting a speculative phase where people have safety. Meanwhile, it doesn't matter whether the Fed's right or wrong or what they're doing because they just don't matter to this type of staging. So why not? Yeah, give them all the credit. doesn't matter. So as it carries on with the speculative phase, the next stage is that it enters the greed phase where people say, my dentist just made $300,000. I made dick. So I'm going to go borrow against my house and get into the stock market. This is what's called the Ponzi stage, where the financing becomes more and more important for just financing the financing, which is causing bubbles and greed goes max. Now, What happens with this is the first two stages discreetly go up and go down. When it's in hedge stage, it doesn't go up a lot and it doesn't go down a lot. Speculative stage, it starts to go up a lot and it can go down a fair bit, but it's nothing that really is super dangerous. And this is the stage that the Fed should step in. They should take the Miller punch bowl away and reduce the amount of fun out there. And they should tighten. And they can only tighten by either a threat of or an actual sharp change in the Fed funds rate, either plus or minus. But when it hits the Ponzi stage, Not only is the reality of the Fed being impotent become apparent to everyone, in which case they can just thumb their nose at it and tell them to screw off, leave us alone. 
but it becomes where there's no solution the government can offer when it falls apart. And that's called a crash. Now, we used to have these all the time before 1913. And that's why the Fed was created, both with law to tame the trusts, but also to drop the volatility, to reduce the instability that was in the system so Americans can plan things. We carry on, we learn a little bit in the Great Depression and so on. And then we hit the GFC and then the Fed, all that education in terms of how to maintain us from not going into a Minsky and Ponzi stage and taming the speculative stage. So it just keeps looping around within the first two stages. All that technique and capability that result in the great moderation is just tossed. It was just, we are so good and so powerful and people have such belief in us that we don't even need to worry about this type of thing. And that's where we are now. So if we go back to how you framed it, which I liked, which is there's sentiment and macro, and that's what matters. I think I always broke it up into sentiment and fundamental, and macro can be part of fundamental, but... Oh, fundamental, yes. There's a third category, which is what I call narrative macro, which is usually by people who don't commit risk. It's on CNBC, the, it's on... The, uh, the salesman the, macro. The storytelling, yeah, 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 salesman macro. And this yeah. is the one I want to go after, because I think for the average person, even the financially adept person, they hear a lot of the salesman macro. And this is why I think it's fun to break it down. You don't have to get into the Fed flow of funds and download stuff and do tables. But this is what I wanted to spell because I think you got this right and I want to go into it, which is that recession's coming, something's going to break. Going into this year, the Fed is out of control. The reason why they're going to cut, by the way, is because a recession's coming and here we are almost at year end and it couldn't have been further from the salesman macro pitch. What did the salesman macro pitch get so wrong? Which just in my experience, it's usually the thing you want to bet. When someone says, what are you contrarian against? It's against the salesman macro. But what did the salesman macro get wrong this time? Well, the salesman macro, because they got to make a living, they got to put some tickets through every day. Otherwise, they won't keep their job. This goes for stockbrokers or more astute stockbrokers. In the end, they're all sentiment guys, because otherwise you can't live. Very few guys have gotten to the level as far as being a salesman where they can only do one trade effectively every 18 months. They are, they're out there. There are some guys like that. There was this guy, probably a fidelity, who'd sit in the corner and hardly move. You thought he was dead. And then about every nine months or 12 months, he would suddenly come to life. Then he'd pick up the phone and there'd be a trade beyond trades that was printed. But for the most part, guys are just trying to make a living and they can't just talk about sentiment. So what they do is they have to figure out the sentiment and then they got to cherry pick the macro story or the fundamental story and plaster over the sentiment with these filigree of decorations. That's what I mean. So the coming into 23 was a recession and then it was this voice for soft landing. Now it feels like we're on the other side of it where everyone thinks the Fed nailed it or they're wrong and the Fed's going to blow something up. So I'm curious, I think one of your calls was that you were entering the speculative phase of equities and equities were going to go up, which they have done. And that was an out of consensus view. But you also had a view that the 10-year could go up to something like 6%. So the equity side seems to be working. And if we take your framing, it's because we're beginning the speculative phase, which will be in a Ponzi phase and then eventually crash. What is it? Because obviously the Powell reaction of we're on hold, the narrative sentiment really works that if the Fed's on hold, rates rallied hard on that. They're not going up, they're going the other way. So what's your take on that? And what is your view for why rates are going higher? Well, first, the reality, they don't matter. They have shown no indication of mattering for many years now, certainly not since COVID. And that is if dollars and cents mean something to you or the actual economic response. There is no monetary impulse. Okay, I said my bit. Okay, you strive on. Okay, forget this guy. 
So what the Fed has done is that they're trying to change their forward guidance call because remember I said that they don't operate in facts. They mm -hmm. operate in a myth or almost a religious belief system of what's going to happen in a year time or six months, dot plots. But if they've had it going one way and they assume that if we keep going this way, we're going to lose power. And also keep in mind that we're coming into an election year. And it is going to be a real pissing match if the Fed were to carry on with its forward guidance that we're going to tighten up and people are going to lose their jobs as the economy roars on and as they get into an election. Well, that's unsustainable because if the Fed is only operating on a narrative, then you got to be very careful that your narrative is aligned with those guys who pay your salary and will hire and fire you. And the Fed says, okay, we can do two things. We can either do the right thing, like Volcker. And to be fair, the right thing would be to raise, I'm assuming you believe that the risk-free rate's higher and the Fed should be higher right now. Well, if the Fed truly wants 2% inflation, they think actually it's the law for them to get it to 2%, which it is, by the way, it's codified law, then they should raise Fed funds in a shock basis, oh, let's say 7%. And it should be done. Everyone thinks this is that. So they have a full conference call before Christmas, Merry Christmas, 7% Fed funds. That would get people's attention and that would reclaim their integrity. But that's not going to happen. Not a chance in hell. So your view for rates to go higher, is that based on your macro side, that there's so much fiscal stimulus in the economy that rates will go higher? Or what's the driver behind the higher rates call? Well, the risk-free rate in the United States, and I'm being tricky now, I'm not saying U.S. Treasury tenure. Most people think that's very bad, and I can say the same, but mm -hmm. they're not. They used to be, but they're not now. But let's talk about the risk-free rate. It is the rate that is the clearing rate for your view on the U.S. economy, assuming that the U.S. economy is risk-free. We have seniorage. It's not going to disappear. Nobody's going to conquer us anytime soon. So therefore, the risk-free rate has something to do with NGDP for 10 years. And this is actually a fairly well-developed economic theory. It's not me. It's a guy named Irving Fisher. So if it's baked in the cake that the U.S. economy is likely going to be here over the next year, and it is now. There's no sign of monetary tightening. Nobody in Congress is going to suddenly raise taxes by $2 trillion or $3 trillion. So this expansion of NGDP, which has probably dropped down to now about 5.5% with inflation dropping of late, has in it to probably settle out around 6%. And in a very rough, robust way, usually US Treasury 10 years trade about 20 basis points below NGDP expectations for that same period for 10 years. Excuse me, that U.S. Treasuries, risk-free rate, because now I got to explain something else. And I make a monkey of myself if I don't point that out. The 30-year conventional mortgage that is the source for Fannie Mae and Ginnie Mae mortgage-backed securities, which are risk-free, they just have convexity, other issues that we all found out about in 2008. They have to be very close to that risk-free rate implicit so as to be in sync with the NGDP economy. Because think of it otherwise. If let's say that the risk-free rate that's implicit in mortgage-backed securities is 100 basis points lower than what is in the economy, we are in a massive housing boom beyond the pale. It goes crazy. It's going to make 2008 look like nothing because everyone's going to bail the house and they have to put the money out and there'll be takers, 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 and it just doesn't work. So on the other hand, if the risk-free rate that's implicit in mortgages and mortgage-backed securities, say 100 basis points, 1% over the US economy and GDP expectations for 10 years, then the whole home market gets crushed. And that really pisses off voters. Where like, are those numbers now? Where is the conventional mortgage versus your NGDP numbers? I cleverly tripped you. Right now, they're about a five and three quarters US Treasury tenure. 
In other words, where the U.S. Treasury 10-year used to trade in relationship to mortgage-backed securities of Fannie Mae's and Ginnie Mae's, if it was trading that way before quantitative easing and muckety-muck, all this movement, then they'd be trading right now at about 6%. So that's my fantasy. It's already at 6%. I don't have to even explain myself. Well, the reason why it's interesting, and there's a lot of terminology, I know that some people have followed all of it, but the notion that the salesman, or not even just a salesman, just the financial media headline was rates higher, housing collapse coming. And everyone's like, well, there's not enough housing supply. People need to buy homes. If that is the risk free rate, they're going to pay it. It's a head scratcher to some people because the headline was this thing. And I think a lot of people have 08 and COVID PTSD which isn't right. necessarily a bad mindset that everyone's afraid bad things are going to happen. So that people think that, but then the reality is that if the rates are aligned and if you look at supply and demand back to the fundamentals, you get a different picture than the most recent narrative of the week. Absolutely. And you see it in new home sales. They're not as high as they were December of last year, but they're not at all stagnating. They're way above where they were pre-COVID. They're doing quite well. 935,000 people are out building new homes new residents, some are multifamily. And pre-COVID, it was about 700 odd. So there is a very healthy home industry right now, and it's very strong. Why? Well, because while, yeah, the rates are going up because they got to reflect NGDP change, they're also indicative of wages that are more than keeping up with inflation, and everyone's getting more money. And there's huge swaths of the industry right now that are hiring. We have not had an employment slowdown, despite what Paul Powell promised us last year. So the economy's on fire, really. That's what it comes down to. So equities are going to go up. Housing prices are going to go up. We're going to enter a Ponzi phase. We might. We might. It sounds more fun to say that. If you say the world's going to end, you get more clicks and likes. Doom always does better than up. But if you assume that you're going to enter a phase like that, and then you're going to enter a Minsky moment where the stability will breed instability, some bad crash will happen. Just also thinking about time and giving people a perspective of if the banks don't get involved, because to me, the biggest problems are, I have a bias because I came from the fixed income markets, but when credit gets overstretched, that's where the booms really happen. And the reason why 08 was so damaging is because it was at the heart of it. But we have a lot of regulation. The banks always seem to find a way to get in trouble. Just inevitably, they find a way around something. If the banks didn't get involved, I'm just playing a devil's advocate hypothesizing about a Minsky moment. Is it just that asset prices get crushed and you get a traditional recession and not some deep, great financial crash? Yes, would be the answer usually. But that was with a very healthy Fed where they're already engaged with the economy. They're ready to rock and roll. And they can add a mass amount of liquidity. They go do the Lombard Street Badgett liquidity presence. Okay, you fight banks, you all need a trillion bucks, you need it now, done. Just what clarity have? We don't have much. Okay, that collateral is suitable. Done. Okay, as far as your liquidity squeeze, it's over. They could do that. But it's not clear that right now they could do anything more than just a badget type of rescue for certain banks that just stupidly got involved. I think the areas that where this liquidity and this debt creation will come from, it never repeats itself. We always find a new place. I don't have the imagination to come up with it. There are a lot of non-bank banks out there now. A lot of shadow banks. There's a lot of foreign sources of funds that can come to the U.S. The demand creates the supply of credit. So it's not that the demand won't happen unless the credit's there. It's the other way around. When we get to this piece, it's going to come somewhere. But that does have to happen. And we have to get a buying panic. Otherwise, I'm all wet. And I don't know when that's going to happen because it wouldn't happen if I could know. Because everyone else would know. So that's my story. I'm going to stick with it. So 
one of the questions I wanted to get you on was when I think about your career of trading markets and you trade with some of the people in different books, the treasury market, the liquidity, the flow, how has that changed with the pace of higher frequency trading and liquidity and its impact on these market forces? Okay, well, I'm biased because I've suffered pain from some of these characters, but it's a flow of funds argument. It's like, if you think about a certain firm is going to break, they're listing in their ADV. That's what they have to file with the SEC in terms of how much money they're in touch with under management. They're listing that they have $340 billion under management. And this is leverage money. This is not Fidelity or BlackRock or whatever. This is leverage money. So let's say 10 times, that's three odd trillion that they're in touch with. That's a lot of money. And their own flagship is going to break to $50 billion for 2024. And they probably run that with a lot more leverage than just 10 times doing a lot of zero trading, expiry, this, that, all these games to play. Lewis's book on SBF and the crypto is a fantastic read, not so much for this thief, but for the description of the high frequency trading and what they're doing and how they're behaving. Now, if you think about the fact that one the main firm has made 15%, it looks like, for 2023, and now they're going to be 50 billion, and they've given back about 8, 10 billion back to their partners because they just think they're getting too big, very sober of them. That means that they generate this return when the risk-free rate is at 5% or so. And if the equity markets have done this, is that basically a, a break-even for the year? When their peer group, who aren't all dummies, have gotten only about a quarter of the return that they have, and they're so differentiated and so singular in terms of what their returns are, and considering the size that they have to do in something to get that return, all you got to do is look at what's moved the most. And you got a fair idea that that's what they did. And obviously, you should think about the U.S. Treasury tenure. You should think about the commotion that's going down right now. And I think the Fed and the Treasury is just scratching their head wondering, why the hell do you have a trillion basis trade on? That's just a basis trade. That doesn't do anything. It obviously is there so that they can profit from the Treasuries going from 425, 430, up to 5%, and then on exactly the right time, because a few guys started to talk about it, it plunges down to where it is right now at 395. And you also got to think, what important Fed guy actually ended up working at certain shops like this? If I have seen the pattern for a rigged market, which when Paul Mosier went to jail in the early 90s over the two years and other things beforehand, this is it. In other words, the only reason the U.S. Treasury 10-year went from 420, 430, skyrocketed to 5%, and then on a dime, it dives back down to four and a quarter or 395 or something like that. That is not an orderly market. That is a wild allegation just because the market's so big to say that one player could move it that much. It's a weird thing to even think about how to do it just because of how big the market is. When I was involved in the scam in terms of rigging the nine and a quarters, this was the 80s, we drove the nine and a quarters one and a half percent below all other long bonds at the time. And the way we did it, and it is we, I was in a shop, we picked the most arrogant, confident dealer. And we said, how big are you? Oh, we're big, bigger than big. And said, okay, we're going to go buy 500 million hits of the nine and a quarters in the form of a put, because everyone knows that it's going to go to hell. And the guy says, fine, here, you just can't go near anybody else for any options. Done. So we do that and then wait a few minutes. And he's going crazy trying to buy 250 million treasuries to hedge himself. And we just convert the whole thing with the par amount the underlying. So you do a conversion from a put to a call, you have to buy 500 million. So we're doing 500 million. That guy's doing 250 million. 
And then we wound up all the repo and all the financing for as far term as we could, which went out to about a month at that time. And we drove the thing about one and a quarter percent. This is all in Leo now. When the play was over, John Corzine, who ran Goldman at that time, he got caught up in a little bit with it. Paul Jacobson sat at a table with us. Paul Jacobson, who's a very great trader, but he's going on saying, look, this is so rich and stupid. You can't hang on to it. You got to let it go and we'll get you out for only a quarter of the loss that you will suffer if you hang on to this. And he went on and on and on and on. And the guy I was working with just sort of smiled and nodded. And then John Corzine put his hand on the guy and said, okay, you got us. We're fucked. What do we pay you to get out? And he says, oh, I wish you hadn't said that. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, you're going to be doubly fucked. So they all laughed and chuckled, and he mentioned a very large number, and that's where they did it. And that was the end of the squeeze. And then a couple of days later, the Federal Reserve called, and it's unusual. The Federal Reserve on line three, and this guy I was working with at that time says, who the fuck are they? Tell them to fuck off. <laughs> I said, no, Judge, you can't tell that to the Federal Reserve. you got to speak to the Federal Reserve. So we talked, sorted it all out. And I think we were one reason why the laws that did come in place were written. Now that is all illegal. And I'm telling you, the market action that we saw in the U.S. Treasury tenure is identical to when we used to do this. So it did nine, of course, did another couple of issues, the two years, which eventually got Paul Mosher in jail. But that price action is identical to what we saw the U.S. Treasury do. Wow. <laughs> a good story anyway. It is, George. So where are we in the cycle? We talked a lot about where we've come from, where we are. I'm curious in the sentiment cycle, where do you think we are? I might put the dot a little higher than it is, but I do think that things are still orderly. People aren't really seeking death. They're very confident. They really understand this Fed. They really know where they are. I don't think there's a risk of a big melt up or any action we get as we get into the speculative phase, especially the Ponzi stage that I described before. So I put us at the optimistic phase. So they're going to keep the stock market and they're going to keep shorting or selling down treasuries because what the hell, if it went to 5% and now down to 395, it must be the thing to do. Now, the U.S. Treasury's yield and equity markets cannot be trading in lockstep. They can't have a large positive correlation. Not so much because that just upsets all the 60-40 guys and all the bond guys and everything. It's just that that negative correlation that U.S. Treasuries and equities have is explained by the fact that when NGDP is very strong, equities do well, and that rate comes back into U.S. Treasury markets. So that's going to reverse. Now, that's going to be a bit of commotion, but I don't know when, maybe first quarter next year. Awesome. George, thank you for the time. This has been a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning. <laughs>